Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up, do you know how often your child's school updates its security and safety plans? The state may not know either. The Connecticut Mirror reported this month that 16 school districts have not followed a state law enacted nine years ago requiring them to submit those plans to the state annually. We talked to a national school's security expert about how districts should prepare. This comes after some local school boards recently added police or voted to arm security officers in schools in response to the recent mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. We hear from the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. That's just ahead. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. First. From Columbine to Sandy Hook to Charleston, Orlando, Las Vegas, Parkland, El Paso, Atlanta, Buffalo, Uvalde. And for the shootings that happen every day in the streets that are mass shootings we don't even hear about, the number of people killed every day in the streets. Their message to us was do something. How many times have you heard that? Just do something. For God's sake, just do something. Well, today we did. That was President Joe Biden on Saturday when he signed a bipartisan bill to address gun violence. It's been described as the first major federal gun safety legislation in nearly three decades. And as we know, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy led negotiations on the package that includes millions of federal dollars for mental health and school safety. Now, that new law came in the same week a U.S. Supreme Court ruling expanded gun rights when it struck down New York State's law that limited carrying handguns in public. For more, joining us now on Zoom is Jacob Charles, executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law and lecturing fellow at Duke University School of Law. His focus includes Second Amendment doctrine and theory and the role of guns in the criminal legal system. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we get to that Supreme Court ruling on guns last week, can you tell us how this new federal law factors into the broader conversation about gun control? Absolutely. So this, as you said earlier, is the first set of major federal gun laws in 30 years. It's pretty striking to have it uh, coincide with the Supreme Court's decision on, on guns for the first time in about a dozen years. And what I think you can see from the legislation is there are a couple pieces here that um, have been um, pushed for a long time, including closing the so-called boyfriend loophole, which uh, makes it so those who are convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence con- uh, convictions um, who are in dating relationships are also barred from possessing firearms and a few other laws that have been sought 
Uh, at the same time, it doesn't include a lot of provisions that the majority of Americans say they want, like universal background checks or um, uh, age restrictions on possessing firearms or on purchasing firearms and other kind of measures that have shown wide popular support. So it's a sign, I think, that the uh, movement for stricter gun regulation is gaining some success in the national legislature in the ways it hasn't for a long time, um, and yet that it's still not reflecting the complete views of the American population. And I understand there's some time limits here to some of uh, these provisions in the law. Um, so depending on a, a change in uh, leadership in a decade or so, we could see some of these uh, provisions uh, disappear. That's right. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, something similar happened to uh, the federal assault weapons ban that was enacted in 1994. And it contained also a 10 year sunset provision and it expired in 2004 without being reenacted. Um, some of the other provisions I thought were interesting were it changes the process when someone aged 18 to 21 goes to buy a firearm, uh, certainly in response to, to what we have seen in some of the recent perpetrators of these mass shootings, Jake. It does. That's right. So it provides what the legislation calls an enhanced background check, which allows for um, the um, the background check agency to search into juvenile records for some of these individuals, and it gives them more time to do so than under current law. Um, one of the things that's noteworthy about this restriction is that it is, um, you know, it, it may function in some cases as, as a waiting period, but it's nowhere near as onerous as many states, uh, or at least several states in response to mass shooting events enacted just flat out um, prohibitions on possession of uh, the kind of rifles that were used in a lot of these shootings by those who are under 21. Um, under current federal law, it's already unlawful for a federal firearms dealer to sell a handgun to a person who's under 21. So these provisions only apply to those who are trying to purchase long guns. So uh, moving on to the Supreme Court's uh, ruling uh, last week that struck down a, a century-old New York gun law that limited the right to carry a handgun in public. So give us some context on uh, this decision and, and how it will impact uh, some of these states that you just mentioned that have stricter gun laws, Jake. So in 2008 is the first time the Supreme Court ruled on uh, definitively what the Second Amendment does. Um, and it said there that it protects an individual right to have a gun in your home for self-defense. Fast forward, uh, the Supreme Court has not done much in that intervening 14 years uh, to tell lower courts how to apply the Second Amendment or what else it covers besides home firearm possession. And we get to this case uh, now, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association against Bruin, and the court declared that it protects a right to carry your guns outside the home for self-defense as well. And in doing so, it struck down New York's restrictive concealed carry law that required a person to show proper cause or good cause to get a permit, uh, which is the same kind of legislation that's in uh, six other states and that had been um, a traditional regulation throughout the 20th century. It's now a, you know, a minor um, one, but it had been uh, a majority approach throughout much of the 20th century. Um, and what the court did is not only strike down that law, but more significantly, it changed the test that lower courts should use when they face these Second Amendment challenges. So historically, or at least for the last 14 years, what they had done is they'd apply a test where they look to whether or not a given law is burdening conduct that's protected by the Second Amendment. And then if it is, they'd apply a conventional test in constitutional litigation where they uh, tested the government's interest. Is it reducing 
uh, gun violence generally? Is it reducing suicides or mass shootings? And then they would check what means the government uh, used, so what kind of law uh, was in existence and whether or not that was effectively serving those interests. The court said that kind of analysis can't be done anymore. What can only be done now is for a state to prove that there is a historical tradition that supports the kind of regulation in existence today. So the state has to put forward historical evidence that is going to be sufficient to satisfy the judges that there is a history there, that there's historical precedent for the kind of laws that they're enacting today. So I understand that states can continue to prohibit guns in some places like schools and government buildings. But given what you just shared, what about other public places, uh, Jake, when we think about, um, you know, public arenas uh, um, and places that we have seen mass shootings um, happen? That's right. The decision uh, does say that there are certain, quote, sensitive places in which guns can be prohibited. Um, Heller in the 2008 case said those are schools and government buildings. Uh, the decision um, just last week said that also includes uh, voting precincts and legislative halls and courthouses, but it didn't give much guidance for what other places can be included. It said to use analogies uh, to history to show what other places can be included in that. And I think what that is going to do is open up a whole bunch of litigation over what kinds of places today guns are restricted in, what kind of places today are seen as, as sensitive, and whether or not those match the intuitions of a judge reviewing the case about whether they're similar to a historical place like courthouses or schools or government buildings and what kind of metrics those lower courts are going to be using for judging these um, that I think is, is this decision at least does not provide clear guidance for how courts should go about making that inquiry. Not clear guidance. So in effect, more difficult now for states to defend rules limiting guns in public, Jake? Absolutely. Um, and particularly given the way that the court um, seems to require a pretty fairly uh, robust tradition for historical firearms regulation to justify a modern one. It's not enough to point to one or two or three jurisdictions and say, see, they had this kind of law there. Uh, the court is requiring kind of a, a much broader uh, sort of tradition when states are trying to justify a modern gun law. That said, um, it's, 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 it's something of a myth to say that all gun regulations are modern. In fact, uh, throughout American history, gun rights and gun regulations have always coexisted, that at the founding and throughout our nation's history, guns have been regulated, especially in public places, um, to protect the public peace. Um, but it, I think it's absolutely right to say it's going to be much harder for states to justify it when uh, the Supreme Court seems to be quite demanding in the historical precedent that they're requiring. You're hearing Jacob Charles here on Where We Live, Executive Director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law and lecturing fellow at Duke School of Law as we talk about this recent Supreme Court ruling on uh, that actually expands uh, gun rights in our country. Um, I wanted to uh, mention Connecticut's Attorney General William Tong acknowledged that this decision, quote, could undermine Connecticut's gun laws, uh, many that went into effect after the, the mass shooting here at, at Sandy Hook in 2012. But uh, Tong also also underscored the role Connecticut would play in fighting back. Let's take a listen. We are not going back in Connecticut. We will stand up and fight. And if this Bruin decision leads to an attack on Connecticut's gun laws, we will be the firewall and we will do everything we can to protect Connecticut families and children, particularly kids in school, from gun violence. 
And so again, what you just shared in terms of how states like Connecticut, will it be difficult for them? Uh, as Tong mentioned, they're going to fight back. <laughs> but well, given what uh, the lower courts now have to uh, consider uh, when a, a suit comes forth. Yes, for sure. So uh, Attorney General Tong uh, even mentioned in, in one of his statements that this could undermine or at least lead to challenges to Connecticut's assault weapons ban, to its age restrictions, to the prohibition on, on guns in certain sensitive places that might be harder to justify, um, and to the suitability requirement in Connecticut's concealed carry law, which wasn't the same provision at issue in the New York case, but is a similar type of provision in which a licensing official seems to have some sort of discretion to issue licenses. So I think it's absolutely right to say that um, those are now open to challenge in ways uh, they might not have been if the court had um, just left in place the prior test for assessing these types of laws, and that there's going to be a whole different type of justification the state needs to mount. Before, the state would have mounted a justification that looked to empirical evidence of effectiveness and said, see, our gun laws are helping reduce gun violence, that we have fewer deaths, or we have fewer injuries as a result of the gun laws that we have. The Bruin decision seems to make that kind of evidence irrelevant to the question of constitutionality. It doesn't matter if it's serving a really important state interest like reducing gun deaths. All that matters is if the state can introduce sufficient historical evidence, a historical tradition that's similar enough to the type of modern law that it's enacting. Mm. You know, I thought was interesting in the reporting since this ruling came out, uh, this, you know, again, likely to call into question half dozen other state concealed carry permitting laws that were similar to New York's. And while that's a, a minority of states, it's a sizable portion of the population, around 25 percent of Americans who live in jurisdictions with these more restrictive laws. How do you respond, Jake? Yeah, that's right. So there are there's two levels to why the case is important. It's important because it strikes down these may issue laws. Um, it's important for this point of change in the test that I've been talking about. I don't want to lose sight of this striking down the may issue laws as also a really significant uh, ruling because, as you said, about a quarter of Americans live in jurisdictions in which may issue laws were the law of the land um, up until last Thursday. And now those jurisdictions are going to be required to issue permits based only on um, a set of objective criteria that can't include anything like a showing of uh, a special need for self-defense. And the empirical evidence, um, I readily admit, is very contested on this issue of what it means for public safety when these types of laws are enacted, the shall issue laws that the Supreme Court uh, demanded be enacted across the country. Um, but one recent study showed that about 10 years after enactment of these shall issue laws, violent crime rates are increased by 13 to 15%. So contested empirical literature, but that's what one recent study has shown. And now that this ruling is out, uh, we're already seeing uh, some suits coming forward uh, challenging uh, these particular uh, uh, public carrying laws uh, in other states. Jake, what are you seeing? Right. So I think the next big wave is going to be challenges to these particular places, these sensitive places um, that um, we, we may see more states designating more places as sensitive as a result of this ruling um, and even existing sensitive place restrictions. I think we're going to see challenges to because, you know, you might have trouble as a state government trying to justify, um, you know, a modern regulation on a, a particular place that maybe historically there wasn't gun, there wasn't a gun prohibition in that place. Um, and you might have to find analogies to other places that were similar and 
the question of is it similar based on the people that happen to be there, the types of events that happened there, um, all of those questions were left open by the decision. So we're gonna see in real time what lower courts are doing to uh, to require states to justify these regulations and what they're looking to when they're trying to decide whether or not a current law is, is relevantly similar to an older one. Thanks for the context today. Jacob Charles, again, Executive Director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we pivot to school security. Some local districts are talking about adding more school resource officers or arming school security guards after the latest mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. We talked to the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents just ahead. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the mass shooting at an Evaldi, Texas elementary school, some local school boards reviewed their security plans and started talking about whether to add additional school resource officers or arm security guards. Now, arming security guards in schools will happen in the fall at the Region 18 Lyme Old Lyme School District after its Board of Education approved a plan at a special meeting June 15th. Connecticut Public's Catherine Shen reports that Superintendent Ian Navizer said adding armed guards will help with response times in an emergency. Meanwhile, officials in New Canaan, Westport, and Bridgeport are considering whether to hire more school resource officers. In just a few minutes, we'll hear from the Bridgeport Public Schools Superintendent. Joining us first on Zoom, Fran Rabinowitz, Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Fran, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Um, I'm happy to be here. Now, your organization conducted a poll in the days after the Uvalde shooting regarding the presence of security in schools, whether there are either school resource officers or even armed security guards. Can you tell us about your findings and the different approaches there? Yes, certainly. Um, 
uh, superintendents wanted to know, as they always do, what others were doing. So we did send out a survey and um, we had 95 superintendents um, respond, which is uh, quite a large number. Of that number, um, uh, two thirds had um, uh, school resource officers and they're generally employed at the middle school and high school, although few have them at the elementary school as well. About 11% had um, armed security guards. And if they did have an armed security guard, um, it was at the um, middle school and high school level. When we talk about SROs, school resource officers, or armed security guards, you know, what is that distinction in terms of, of, of when a district is able to have one or the other? Does it depend on, uh, say, even the resources within a, a local police department, whether they have the manpower to assign an SRO to a school, Fran? I would say that that is um, a very big consideration, um, whether or not there is um, the ability to do that. Um, personally, I think it also depends upon or can depend upon the relationship between the municipality, the police department, and the um, school district. Um, and. I, you know, my experience both in Hamden and Bridgeport has been very positive with school resource officers. How common are these conversations? Obviously, when something like this happens in the news, that the press is paying attention. But in terms of the work that school boards, the superintendents, um, how you're reviewing your security plans, you know, how common are these conversations? Well, to be honest with you, Lucy, unfortunately, um, we live right now um, at a time when they're very common. Um, it is part of the framework of planning for the following year. Um, we are constantly looking at our um, safety and security, determining where the um, updates are needed. Um, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't think about professional development in safety precautions for our educators. Now it's part and parcel of what we do. And I, I think that while there was a certainly a, a stop and gather um, after the horrible tragedy in, in Texas, I have to say that this is done on an ongoing basis in Connecticut. You know, earlier in the show, I, I cited a Connecticut Mirror story uh, that yeah. looked into how many school districts are actually following state law enacted after uh, Sandy Hook that requires uh, school districts to file their security plans uh, with the state. Sixteen school districts haven't followed that law, and I thought that was kind of surprising. So how does the public, how do parents know that, you know, their school district is doing what they can to update and make sure that that plan is robust in the case of an emergency? Well, I'm sure you can see the um, safety plan on um, most you know, websites, although they're not going to go into any detail and yes. understandably so, um, because of the um, fact that, you know, we don't want everyone to know what it is we're doing um, for safety. 
I would say to you that some years ago, we had some issues um, with, you know, large numbers of districts not sending um, the plans in every year. I think there were some mixed messages there, but right now there is no um, reason that every school district should not have their plan um, registered with the uh, State Department. And I'm very hopeful um, because of the messages the commissioner sent out, et cetera, that the 16 districts, I, that doesn't mean they don't have a plan. It just means they perhaps um, just thought they submitted and didn't submit. Um, and I'm hopeful that that has been taken care of because because it is of vital importance. You're hearing Fran Rabinowitz here on Where We Live, Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. As she mentioned, she was a longtime superintendent uh, in both Hamden and Bridgeport. Uh, we wanted to get more perspective on some of the conversations that are happening locally uh, from superintendents, like Michael Testani, who's a superintendent of Bridgeport Public Schools. Uh, he recently uh, requested uh, additional school resource officers for the Bridgeport Public Schools District. Uh, Mike is joining us now on the phone. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Lucy. So tell us about your recent request for school resource officers and how many uh, do you have uh, that are, you know, able to be stationed at the many schools in the city of Bridgeport? Well, we currently have four. Um, the recent email after the Uvalde situation was just um, another request. We've been having these conversations since uh, last summer, almost a year, when our school resource officer um, group was reduced simply because of staffing issues in the Bridgeport Police Department. So that, that, that was an ongoing conversation. Um, but, you know, we've been, we've been utilizing school resource officers for well over a decade here in Bridgeport, and we use them effectively. You know, there's a misconception that these are officers inside of our school buildings they're not um they're they're outside they're, they're driving around the neighborhoods they're making sure that they're aware of anyone that could potentially be a danger whether it's you know someone with with a firearm you know someone in a suspicious looking vehicle that may just be um around the school campuses that could be a danger to any children walking home so um you know, that was a concern when we only had four um, in, coming into the last school year. Now, uh, when you mentioned there used to be 14, so this was a budget issue for um, the reduction of SROs. But I'm wondering when you put out that call uh, to request for additional SROs, you know, what have you been hearing from the community? Well, I mean, there, there's there's some mixed of feelings there are some folks who, who believe and can, can you know have a conception that um you know these are officers in our schools they're arresting kids they're putting kids into the juvenile justice system and that's simply not the case um the vast majority do understand that these are officers that have great relationships with kids they have great relationships with families they're a preventative measure I think they appreciate having that extra layer of security on the outside of our school buildings, on the walkways to and from school, because many of our kids do travel um, to and from school. They, they walk because they live in the neighborhoods. Um, so I, I think it does provide for the most, most parents a sense of security that there are uh, police officers out there dedicated 
to making sure kids are safe. I know that the Office of Child Advocate has looked into this issue in, in several uh, school districts in recent years. Uh, you know, the idea that with uh, uh, SROs being present, uh, sometimes uh, schools can over rely on them to handle discipline uh, issues uh, that may be better handled by social workers and other support staff in Bridgeport schools or other schools. And I'm wondering if you can respond to that, um, you know, the, the, the importance of, you know, building up that staff for support versus relying on the SROs? Well, I wouldn't rely on the SROs for work that should be handled by support staff. I think it's, it, they, they work t- together. So, of course, we do need to increase the number of school social workers. We need to increase the number of school counselors. That, that goes without saying. Again, we've been beating that drum for several years here in Bridgeport that we are severely underfunded. Um, and, and those are some of the areas that if we received the proper funding, we would um, increase our staffing levels. I also think there needs to be an extra layer of therapeutic support um, that goes beyond the social worker and the school counselor for kids to be able and families to access um, that has a, just a little bit higher level skill set um, that our social workers and school counselors would have to normally refer to outside agencies if we can have them provide that within our school buildings for kids that have may have more severe needs. I, I think that would be money well spent as well. Uh, Connecticut Post reporter Brian Lockhart, uh, when he was reporting on this issue, said that the uh, school resource office re- officer reduction was due, as we mentioned earlier, budget constraints, but also concerns about their presence having a negative impact in particular on black and brown students in the Bridgeport schools. How do you respond to that concern? Uh, you know, again, I think there's misconceptions. Um when police officers have to respond to a school because of an incident, um, having the school resource officers that have the training, um, that have the relationships not only with the students and families, but the building administration is, is much more effective than just having a call to 911 and a regular patrolman or patrol um, officer um, responding to the school for a, a call. Um, so I think it's important to understand the entirety of what the school resource officer division entailed, not only the individuals that have a desire to work with our kids, the training they receive to work with kids, but the relationships they build over time with students, families, and with the administration so that they're not responding to frivolous calls. Um, and we also have a supervisor that was provided to us from the police department about 14 years ago, Lieutenant uh, Paul Greck, and he is kind of the buffer between that. So um, he was the oversight on whether anything would even be written in a report. So we're very careful and deliberate on how incidents that involve school resource, resource officers are handled. Fran Rabinowitz is still with us again. Uh, she is executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Fran, you were also superintendent in Bridgeport. I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, how um, Bridgeport made a change in the way school resource officers are used. I understand that, you know, there has been a decrease, of course, but, you know, there's also an emphasis on restorative justice policies and thinking about the school to prison pipeline, how to eliminate that. Can you give us some more context? 
Um, sure. And it's very nice to be with um, Mike Testani, um, who's doing a really good job in Bridgeport. And let me just say, when I came into Bridgeport, um, I remember I was about four days on the job and I was at a training and I got a call saying that a fourth grader at a particular school had been arrested for bringing a needle um, to school. And um I, I was appalled. I mean, you just don't arrest fourth graders. And I remember at the time, it was my first meeting with um, Paul Greck, um, who headed up the SROs. And, um, you know, we had some hard words in the beginning. And then we sat down and we talked. And we talked about what the resource officers should be doing and how we should be working together. <clears throat> and I can't say enough about um, how Paul um, moved with the resource officers to a, a very different place. And he ended up training all our security guards. Um, and we had an excellent relationship going forward. Um, the arrests in Bridgeport at that time in the schools decreased enormously. And, you know, um, I have very fond memories of bringing in um, social emotional learning and all of the resource officers and security guards being trained in that as well. That was how good the relationship was and um, very, very reciprocal. And I think that, um, as Mike said, the school resource officers were, um, were uh, a treasure to us. Um, I did not see um, the um, uh, prison pipeline being augmented by them. Actually, I saw it um, tremendously reduced. Uh, Mike Testani, before you go, again, your request was to add additional school resource officers. So where does it stand right now? Well, I think it's going to be a challenge simply because it's it's no uh, secret that the Bridgeport Police Department right now is severely undermanned. Um, their numbers are have really sunken well below what the department would like to see. So I think they're going to meet the needs uh, of the department first. Uh, prior to providing the schools with additional resource officers. But we're hopeful as the conversations continue and recruitment efforts are uh, beefed up with the, uh, with the police department that there'll be an opportunity again down the road um, to revisit this conversation. In the meantime, we do have, as, as Fran mentioned, we have school security officers who are highly trained um, in restorative practices to work with our kids and our families. And uh, we're just going to you know, revisit and, and plan for the coming school year with what we do have. Is Mayor Ganim responsive uh, to the needs of, of the schools? Uh, when we think about, again, what we talked about earlier, uh, funding for more social workers and counselors in schools, uh, you know, Hearst also interviewed Faith Acts, which is a nonprofit, nonprofit rather, that partnered with dozens of local churches. Uh, its executive director saying that their members, also registered voters, don't want to see a police presence, uh, but want our kids to have more access to social workers and counselors. How are local lawmakers and the mayor responding to that request? Well, I mean, I know it's a challenge uh, for the city to 
budget the appropriate number of dollars historically here to the, the public schools, but it, it's definitely something that we continue to advocate for year after year, not only at the local level, but the state level as well. Um, Bridgeport, compared to the other large municipalities, um, has been kind of given the short end of the stick when it comes to school funding, and we're going to continue to advocate for more funds for resources like social workers, school counselors, and other academic support areas as well so that we can provide kids with everything they need to be successful and hopefully uh, be able to support them during the times uh, that they're having some trouble social and emotionally. Again, that's Michael Testani, superintendent of Bridgeport Public Schools. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. You're listening to Where We Live. Staying with us is Fran Rabinowitz, Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. After the break, we're going to talk to a national school security expert. What questions do you have? You can join us. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Now we've been talking about the kinds of conversations local school leaders are having about school security. With us on Zoom, Fran Rabinowitz, Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. My next guest has 30 years of frontline school security experience and has worked with school and safety officials from all 50 states and internationally. Kenneth Trump is president of National School Safety and Security Services, a national consulting firm out of Cleveland, specializing in school security and emergency preparedness training. Ken, welcome to our show. Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, earlier we on the show, we talked about this new federal gun safety law, which includes funding for crisis intervention, also mental health programs, as well as school security. I understand you've spoken about how often uh, there's a tension in the form of funding, but it is rarely sustained. Can you explain? Well, we're a roller coaster society, roller coaster public awareness, public policy, and public funding. After high profile incidents, states and federal government at times kind of throws money at school security, uh, at school safety, and then when the public attention fades, so does the funding over a period of time. And I've been in this field for more than 30 years, uh, and that's consistently what we've seen following Columbine, uh, even more so following Sandy Hook, Parkland, and remains to be seen what happens uh, now after Uvalde. And then when that funding is put together, it's often done in a knee-jerk manner without a lot of input uh, on best practices. And one of the challenges we have right now is this at a number of state levels uh, as well and as at the federal level is a quick fix to target hardening, throwing money at one-time shot in the arm cameras or physical security measures. And we know that the first and best line of defense is a well-trained, highly alert staff and student body that when we work, as I have, on civil litigation as an expert witness in the highest profile mass school shootings, as well as lower-level 
crimes and violence. We know that while the facts and merits vary, the common allegations after a fact is alleged failures of human factors, policies, procedures, people, training, et cetera. So we make sure that we have sustained funding and the right funding as well. And so uh, when we were talking about uh, the local conversations in Connecticut after Uvalde, some school districts thinking about adding additional school resource officers, so uh, police from the local police department that are trained uh, in the school setting versus armed security guards. So even after Uvalde, are you seeing districts that are putting a lot of focus on thinking about arming security officers or having additional SROs uh, versus uh, what you had talked about earlier about hardening? Well, that, the school resource officers also come into that fold as sort of the first movement. Uh, school resource officers have been around for decades now, even before the Columbine, uh, and they certainly increased after Columbine. We've had dips in funding for them, both at the local district levels as well as grants uh, as time passed uh, after Sandy Hook, after Parkland. You'll see the little spikes in that. But the key thing, and I did hear the, a good conversation in a prior segment, is that, uh, again, sustainability. It has to be a not, not viewed as a grant-funded luxury. And what people don't understand is a properly run SRO program a school resource officer program uh, is more than having a person there with a gun or something that leads to arrest. It's a prevention program. You need to have the right officer. You have to have a clear memorandum of understanding. It needs to follow what's called the triad model, where it's a, a counselor, a law-related educator, and a law enforcement officer. There will be times when there are arrests, when crimes occur. Uh, we can't have islands of lawlessness where we just close our eyes and say that there aren't crimes in schools and there aren't times where those occur. But a good resource officer program actually prevents more than you'll ever see in arresting. But you have to have that good relationship that Fran talked about and that communication ahead of time. And you have to make sure that there's a clear memorandum of understanding on what's the job of the administrator versus what's the job of the officer. And when we hear SROs criticized so much about questionable arrests, and they do occur. Uh, there's some things I don't know that we can legislate, or in some cases can't even train common sense. Uh, but at the same time where we see those cases where SROs make bad decisions or there are questionable arrests, which are not the majority of times, we also say that it's, if you're going to throw out the SRO, we need to throw out the school administrator too, because that's, that means it's a failure on everybody's part for not having those good conversations. Uh, the superintendent mentioned about have, coming into the job and having those in the first place so those delineations and duties don't occur. Everybody's responsible at the educator's house. Uh, academics and the well-being of the child is important. And when you have those conversations and you have clear written agreements and training, you reduce the risk of those questionable things occurring. Fran is still with us. Fran Rabinowitz, again, Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Fran, I'm wondering if you can respond in the sense of when we're talking about some of this new money coming um, either from the federal government or even how the state has handled grant programs for, for school security, uh, what school leaders would like to see in terms of, of support and how the money should be spent. 
Well, one thing I would say um, is that in Connecticut, we are fortunate. It doesn't just come and go. We do have um, school security grants available every year that we can apply for. I mean, obviously, it's never enough for everyone, but um, having that available every year to upgrade your um, equipment or whatever is is incredibly helpful. Um, I would say that if in the area of um, school security, I can't separate the mental health issues. And I agree 100% um, about the collaboration that has to occur. And I I also believe that um, we do need more counselors and social workers. And <clears throat> the federal money is there right now. And the gentleman that spoke about the fact that it can't be by grants, and it's absolutely true. I've lived on grants my whole life um, in urban districts. And frankly, it's awful because the grant goes, the program goes. And um, we do have a lot of um, ESSER dollars now um, for um, social workers and psychologists, for training, for security training, et cetera. But we worry about what happens in 24 when that's gone. We also worry and I have to put this on the table. Um, we have the grant money right now to hire all of these mental health workers, but we can't find them. And um, that's another issue that we really um, need to talk about as educators. <clears throat> that's an important point. Yes. Uh, Ken, Ken Trump, again, who's a national consultant uh, with school security and emergency preparedness training. You know, is your phone ringing off the hook after Uvalde? And, and again, you're hearing the same conversations happening in school districts about how to harden versus having better training of school staff on, on site? Well, I certainly would like to echo and, and reinforce the comment about sustainability, not only in funding, but in personnel. COVID has added to that challenge. So, so Fran is, uh, again, spot on. And, and I think the key thing, just to get this point in, is that, um, and what I appreciate hearing in the previous segment and, and her comments again, is it has to be a balance. It's not more social workers and counselors or SROs. It should be having a balance of more prevention and reasonable security measures. They have to go hand in hand. You have to have that secure environment in which to deliver all those other social, emotional, counseling, mental health, and, and, and academic uh, services. So I really appreciate the perspective and leadership there in Connecticut. I've, I've worked in Connecticut. Uh, wonderful people, and I think they have the right perspective on what needs to be done here. Has my phone been ringing off the hook? Yes. <laughs> Sadly to say that while we have had an uptick uh, in requests for services on training, school security, and emergency planning assessments, a lot of professional development requests now, uh, the number one uh, call is from vendors wanting me to endorse and support their products and services and quote-unquote the solution. And, and those calls, quite frankly, go unanswered uh, because we're focused on supporting our, our educators. But I, I, I will say that um, school safety is a, a money issue to some extent. It's also a leadership issue. And when we hear the good comments here about the leadership of the SROs and training your SROs and security personnel on, on SEL and, and all of the other pieces and partnerships and relationships, 
that is the you know that is a good conversation that I wish we heard uh, elsewhere. But it's a leadership issue in time as much as money. I have people calling saying uh, when you know that they have three days of professional development training for their in their schools at the beginning of the school year, um, and they say we'd like to get you before the principal. How much time would you like? And I say, you know, I'd love a day, but you're probably going to tell me a half a day. And I've had people tell me, I'll pay you for the full day, but you only have a half hour. We can't do that. We have to have uh, a, a, an allocation of reasonable time where we keep this on the agenda and sustainability and training. Schools, bus drivers, custodians, food service workers, front office personnel, your support staff, in addition to your crisis teams, your administrators and, and your teachers, need to have some reasonable level of time and training uh, because they're on the front lines. We're switching a lot of our focus on training in recent years and based on my doctoral program research, John Hopkins, on uh, focusing not just on training to the emergency checklist, but because we have so many unknown unknowns today as threats, changes of what the potential threats are uh, to, to schools, we're focusing on situational awareness, mindfulness, training staff to be cognizant of what's going on around them at a point in time at hallways, bus drop off and pick up uh, in, in the cafeteria when they're monitoring. Secondly, pattern recognition and recognizing abnormalities. And then third, how to make cognitive decisions under duress. In education, we make decisions by collaboration, forming committees, picking the best options. There's a different thought process that goes into making split-second decisions. And there's some things that we can do without being alarmist, with using reasonable amount of time uh, to, to help train people to think just a little bit differently, uh, to be able to respond uh, appropriately um, and when there is a, a threat, a, criti a critical incident that they're facing, a stranger in the parking lot, someone approaching the building, someone in the hallway who, who doesn't have a visitor ID or an escort, those type of things. So it's complex. There's a lot to it. Um, and I, I think that we have to have the time dedicated to plan, prepare, and practice reasonably, um, not overwhelmingly, uh, as much as we do in conversations about right. the money. Well, Kenneth Trump, again, president of National School Safety and Security Services, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Well, I appreciate joining you in the conversation. Thank you very much. Also with us today, Fran Rabinowitz, executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Fran, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome, Lucy. Anytime. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico with help from Connecticut public intern Mira Raju. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>